You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to the COVID Chronicles, part of the India in Focus podcast. My name is Sachit Balsari. India's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been characterized by a proactive public sector leadership and centralization of decision-making. Private sector and academics stepped up to the plate in the early days in myriad ways, from wanting to boost testing capacity to providing models to forecast the spread of the disease. Few of these measures were effective in controlling the epidemic. Many of the models did not have the data or the correct expertise truly to be helpful. One of the critiques of the response has been the lack of trained infectious disease epidemiologists at the decision-making table. With India beginning its vaccination drives, there were again attempts by think tanks to propose strategies for prioritizing allocation. Again, the lack of domain expertise in some of these conversations is striking. Today, we have joining us Dr. Sanjay Mehendale, Director of Research at PD Hinduja Hospital and Medical Research Center. Hello, Dr. Mehendale. Hello, Sachit. It's nice to be talking to you. Likewise. Dr. Mehendali is one of India's senior epidemiologists and has served at the Indian Council of Medical Research, last as director of the National Institute of Epidemiology. Dr. Mehendali, what is epidemiology? Well, uh, epidemiology, if I have to give you and mention to you the definition per se, it's a science which talks about the distribution and determinants of uh, disease and events as it happens uh, or as it spreads or as it's seen in the community. So basically it talks about uh, the descriptive part, which is the time, place and person who are the people who are affected, where exactly is that particular event or disease happening and what are the time elements attached to that. And then we go for the analytical component. We try to figure out why this is happening and uh, eventually the whole uh, important takeaway from this has to be what can exactly be done to actually prevent and control that particular disease or condition. Initially, we used to just cover the epidemics or outbreaks as a part of epidemiology as, as a science or consider. But now epidemiology as science covers so many other areas like non-communicable diseases, accidents, suicides, and so many other aspects that can affect health. So Dr. Mandeli, then in the early stages of the epidemic, based on what you said, how would we have calculated the burden of COVID-19? What kind of information would you have liked to figure out uh, the spread of the disease? What would you do with the information that you would have had? What would have been the goal of the kind of information an epidemiologist would have needed, say in February, March, and April um, of of the pandemic? See, when we talk about any new uh, disease which strikes a particular society, something which is important to first understand is uh, whether it is uh, highly infectious and uh, then how exactly it presents in terms of its clinical signs and symptoms. And the third thing is, is there any associated mortality with that particular thing? So first point is uh, about figuring it out is the organism which is responsible for that. Normally what happens is, the uh, depending on the presentation, 
of any particular uh, disease it is possible to figure out how the disease might be transmitting from one person to another and that narrows down the whole search as to what the organism could be to certain specific uh, groups or categories of organisms that one would have to look for so for example here primarily it was uh, uh, found that although it started with fever and common cold and sore throat kind of symptoms people presented norm uh, with severe pulmonary symptoms respiratory symptoms and eventually most of them died so this kind of looked like a picture of a typical respiratory virus and so uh, people started thinking uh, on those lines of what respiratory virus it could be and thanks to the development in science it was possible to figure out what what was happening and so this the cause of that as a coronavirus was uh, identified pretty soon we had a history of similar to coronavirus infections which struck the uh, human beings in the recent past including the sars virus the uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome which was reported way back in 2016 and then mers which is middle eastern respiratory syndrome so this coronavirus is something similar to that and this as a cause was identified pretty early when this epidemic struck but then what important thing one has to decipher or understand here in this scenario is if you see people around with certain signs and symptoms are there commonalities or there are quite a few exceptions to this the way a typical disease presents and what we were able to observe here this became a global phenomenon and hence we started calling it as a pandemic who declared it as a pandemic because all the continents of the world got affected but generally the clinical picture everywhere seemed to be consistent the differences were observed in terms of who were the people who were affected what was uh, the death rates were different in different populations and so on but what is most important for an epidemiologist to understand is in addition to all those patients who got identified themselves it was equally important to find out would there be others who would be actually harboring this particular virus or agent but would not show up clinically some of them might may actually do not have any signs and symptoms totally asymptomatic or some of them might might be mildly symptomatic and what is the difference really those who are asymptomatic will never get picked up that is the first thing and those who are mildly symptomatic may be confused with other known infections like here if in this particular case a person would not reach the case of severe respiratory illness then it might be treated or it might be confused with a common cold flu like condition and then might not get even be investigated for this particular infection and for all this to happen one critical tool which has to be available is a reliable diagnostic test so one should have that so to pick up infections and the second thing is one has to understand as to if we want to find out what is the disease burden which was your primary question that you asked here the disease burden has to be uh, decided uh, in different sections of the society naturally what would happen is here the availability of the diagnostic tests these uh, and for all practical purposes even today the diagnostic test the gold standard is a polymerase chain reaction uh, reverse transcriptase based 
detection kit, which is called RT-PCR in uh, acronym. But this is a pretty sophisticated test, which requires a sophisticated laboratory setup. It cannot be typically called as a point of care test, you know. And so the, the reason why this was a critical issue, because this test took some time to develop the production to a certain level, which a country might require to a lot of time. And then you had to create infrastructure or the laboratories, which would cater to the need of the country. But Dr. Mengele, if I may, uh, you, you said that a lot of uh, these uh, cases may be asymptomatic or would have mild symptoms. And, and uh, from what we know of the epidemiological data, now looking back after all these months, it seems like the majority tend to be asymptomatic or have mild symptoms, and only a few people get uh, very sick and, and of those you know, there's a smaller number that that requires more than oxygen and may need ventilatory support and, and you know, many of them. So the mortality is sort of high in those that fall very, very sick. But if a uh, lot of the asymptomatics or the mildly symptomatics are not going to uh, be sick, and if testing is going to be such a laborious process, uh, can you explain sort of uh, uh, whether the asymptomatics need to be tested, whether those with mild symptoms need to be tested and why? It's a great question because, you know, this would always be a dilemma. See, if you just look at public health and what is really required to be done, ideally, what we must do eventually is to break the chain of transmission. So there are people who are having or who are harboring the virus uh, they are either cases or they are asymptomatic individuals, mildly symptomatic individuals on the one hand. And then there is a whole lot of other individuals who are susceptible to this infection. And by some means, if this particular virus from those who are infected, and I'm not at all mentioning here whether they are symptomatic or asymptomatic, the virus gets transmitted to those who are susceptible, they may develop the disease. So, uh, in terms of public health, it makes a whole lot of sense to try and identify each and every uh, person who probably would be infected with this particular virus. But is it possible? Practically, there are serious limitations to that. Because when we say that about 80 to 85% of the cases are symptomatic or mildly symptomatic, then first of all, even though you create a lot of awareness in the society, how many actually would get motivated eventually to come forward and get themselves tested becomes a big issue. So that is from the uh, actually beneficiaries point of view. And also providers, what they would be interested in is try and get as many people where at least there is a clinical suspicion or there is a epidemiological suspicion, somebody who has been in contact with a case to try and at least get them tested. That's a provider's view uh, of looking at it. But uh, what, what could be uh, happening if these people are tested and uh, who are either mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, or what would happen if they are not tested? If, if there is a possibility by which, say, every single individual eventually, if we are talking about a small place, which probably has uh, a population of 100,000, and there is a possibility, technical possibility of, uh, uh, say, testing every single person there. And that too, not once, but periodically. And try to identify each and every person. And then take appropriate measures. Uh, 
uh, as required then potentially the uh, transmission chain can be broken much earlier but it doesn't happen when we talk about large countries large populations i didn't see doing this particular test in a large number of people becomes absolutely difficult and that's why you ought to go for strategies like targeted testing but what's the the other side of this particular story what would these people be doing in fact of those who are either mildly uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic as we all know that these people for all practical purposes would essentially be also spreading this virus in the community to people who are likely to come in their contact and then maybe many of them would be uh, absolutely having no suspicion that they are getting exposed to such an infection just because uh, this this particular person is either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic this would start spreading the disease silently in the community and if we just plainly look at mathematical part of it uh, we do obviously know that uh, there are some people who spread the virus uh, much more compared to others who don't there is also some evidence which says that those who are more symptomatic are more likely to transmit the virus compared to those who are less symptomatic but nevertheless whatever is the scenario the virus definitely keeps spreading so this second school of thought definitely is uh, of this type that if the virus keeps spreading here and if uh, testing is not uh, really targeted to this particular population what would eventually happen is the infection will keep spreading i'm very glad you raised uh, the various complexities with with uh, testing asymptomatic patients early on you know it is it is easy for us 6 months later to critique um that the asymptomatic patients were were not were not tested and i i um i have publicly uh, written about this in in newspapers asking that we rapidly expand testing for asymptomatics but context is so important you're in the early stages of the pandemic you have very few tests available and you have to select who who you are testing and 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 who you are not um in my own practice in our emergency departments um here in in Boston where we were you know several weeks um ahead of the pandemic in terms of 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 prevalence um we initially were of course testing folks that we suspected um had covid-19 or were uh, known um exposures to to patients with diagnosed covid-19 and then suddenly america ran out of q tips you know we did not have the swabs we needed to test and had to be highly selective about who was being tested but the decision was interestingly to not test people with mild symptoms the assumption was that in the middle of the pandemic if you present like you have the disease then you probably have the disease and you should go home and and isolate um and we reserved testing for the very sick to make sure that what was being treated was indeed covid and and other diagnoses were were not being uh, missed uh, this of course um, you know requires um, a lot of consensus in the scientific and the clinical community and and uh, societal trust in in these decisions um, you know communicating to patients that we think that they have covid but we will not test them is uh, is extremely difficult uh, to do and and not necessarily something that uh, all patient populations or societies uh would be would be comfortable with the concern was that in in many cities including in in mumbai public health officials and um leaders at medical institutions were warning physicians not to test um anyone 
other than those that, that had symptoms at a time uh, where you said uh, the asymptomatics and the pre-symptomatics and those with mild symptoms were likely spreading the infection in the community. Do you think that was a lost opportunity? Well, uh, I don't think so. Because, you know, these decisions uh, about a public health intervention like whom to test and whom not to test have to be taken uh, in, in the context of several things as far as a country is concerned. First thing is uh, how quickly we can pick up the right kind of people who could be tested and what could be the relative advantage that we could get if they get tested positive. That would be one. Second thing, I think equally important would be uh, ability to continue this particular exercise in terms of availability of the kits and the availability of the infrastructure. I suppose considering the then prevalent condition in India, it was absolutely clear that, uh, and we are talking about uh, a population of uh, uh, 133 crore uh, people here and such a huge number of people uh, who are at risk of this uh, contracting this particular infection. Merely in terms of numbers, if we have to even think of testing the mildly symptomatic uh, individuals here, forget about asymptomatic people, we, we just can't do that. It would have run into crores of individuals at that time, we didn't have the kids to do that. Community-based studies in India toward late 2020 showed high seroprevalence in many populations, especially among the urban slums there is reasonable suspicion that some pockets may have reached herd immunity by now. As you know, um, at, at uh, this time, it's, it's um, a hot political topic around the world, including the launch of the Barrington Declaration, where three scientists and, and, and many supporters um, came together to say uh, exactly what, what uh, the point you raise is, well, uh, perhaps let, let the infection uh, burn through the community and protect the vulnerable. Um, of course, in, in, in the week that followed, um, the major scientific uh, journals around, around the world, as well as the WHO, uh, came out um, in strong opposition to the idea that, that uh, herd immunity suggested that you let infection burn through the community. And in fact, it is, it is a phrase um, that is more appropriately used for building immunity in the community through vaccination and not by making people sick. Um, the critique has, has been to this herd immunity approach that it is sort of Im Im impractical in the sense, how do you actually go about protecting uh, the vulnerable, and if you continued um, at at the rate at which um, you find severe morbidity and mortality in in many of these countries uh, that that are debating herd immunity, you would end up with um, uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, more uh, deaths. Uh, so, so do you do you agree that herd immunity as a public health strategy should really be about? Uh, vaccinating the population and not letting the infection run through the population. Uh, yeah, indeed, I was going in that direction. It, uh, herd immunity in general is a very hugely debatable issue. I was just talking about silent spread of this particular infection and gradual buildup of immunity in the population. That's one way. The second way is all those people who are actually getting infected with covid they themselves develop immunity. That's the second way. And the third way is active immunization. 
Well, all said and done, at this point of time, these are the three ways in which uh, the immunity is likely to build up uh, among humans against this particular infection here. But the, there are still unanswered questions, I would say, because we do not know to what extent the, uh, the antibodies which get uh, developed after the exposure or to active infection or to vaccinations until what time these are likely to last that's one and second thing would they essentially be protective you know what is most uh, worrisome from from what you just said is um, uh, the fact that we don't know how long this um, immunity immunity lasts and there is uh, so much hope both uh, societal and political on, on these vaccines as sort of the end point of, of this global nightmare that um, uh, it is, it is uh, indeed, um, <clears throat> there's so much hope both societal and political on the arrival of this vaccine that it would be uh, devastating to think about um, this disease not granting lifelong immunity. We, we, we know that, you know, diseases like measles and chickenpox, we've gotten lucky where uh, the first bout of infection or vaccination uh, confirms immunity for a very long time. I mean, people sometimes need boosters many decades later, but by and large, if you've, you've had it once uh, or you've been vaccinated once, um, the immunity lasts for a long time, as opposed to the seasonal flu, uh, where because of the, the genetic mutation, uh, we need a vaccination program every year. And we just don't know which, which way this is likely to go. You are making an important point here. Uh, the issue is, uh, is how far is the vaccine going to be efficacious and how far is the vaccine-induced immunity going to last? These are the questions which we do not know the answers as of now. Only the time is going to prove it. And why are the phase three trials uh, planned to give those kinds of answers? Uh, they, we do require three to five years to basically figure out what is going to be uh, happening. So these trials which have been started in 2020 uh, would have accrued follow-ups of up to two years by 2022. This would also provide an opportunity to study among those who have uh, started building antibodies uh, during their frequent follow-ups for to uh, periodic follow-ups. Do they do the antibodies last for a period of time, and for how long do they last? Are other kind of comorbidities and uh, other kind of physical conditions people have in their own bodies do they interfere with this, this particular process? We do not know. So it is going to take time for sure, and we, we will need that. Another important point, which again is not very clear or evidence is not very clear today, is about you did talk about lifelong immunity to certain diseases, like uh, you did talk about smallpox and measles. Yes, we were lucky, we must say. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19. I always say and I always feel that uh, what we are experiencing right now is we are just in the process of learning. We are accumulating evidence, we are assimilating evidence, and probably learning at every single step. You you mentioned that uh, that you know we need to to look at look at these these data, um, and and one of uh, 
uh, the, the challenges with, with data in this pandemic um, in, in India in particular has been the massive uh, centralization of, of information without uh, data being available uh, to local communities, you know, all testing data, for example, is 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 is, is reported uh, to ICMR, but is less uh, easily available, or at least was for many many months less easily available uh, to uh, local officials. You have um, directed the National Institute of, of Epidemiology. What is the the state of of uh, data in 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 india what is what is the capacity uh, to uh, collect data to archive data and to share data with a wide range of uh, shareholders in a manner that is privacy preserving uh, and that is that is responsible i say this in the context of the the contrast between the thriving computer science data science ecosystem in the private sector in india and the lack thereof uh, that we have all felt in uh, both clinical medicine and in public health in India. Um, what, what is what is the insider's view? What can we do better? What should we be focusing on? Or are we where we need to be? Okay. Uh, see, uh, as far as the transfer of data is concerned, uh, we have seen an example as a part of the National Health System of India, certain diseases, notifiable diseases, there has been now a very well uh, set system by which right from the peripheral uh, primary health centers to this uh, to the ministry of health how the data gets passed on through a very well thought out and very well implemented system as to uh, how does it flow from a primary health center to the district level and from the district level to the state level and from the state level to the center. And there, there are absolutely timelines defined for that. And that's exactly how this goes. And this includes cases on uh, different kinds of mortalities. This include uh, cases uh, related to various infectious diseases of public health significance and so on. So if we were able to set up that kind of a system, we certainly will be able to set up any kind of other system as well. As far as various infectious diseases uh, which are notifiable and of public health significance are concerned and other morbidities and mortality among children and women are concerned, a well-developed system has been set up for uh, reporting that data, collecting that data from the peripheral level and bringing it to the central level and producing periodic uh, reports, dashboard indicators which become available for people to take immediate action. What is the time lag uh, there between the collection of the data and the availability of data? Are we talking days, weeks, months? What is acceptable and what is the current situation? What I'm saying is in terms of some infectious diseases, it happens every month. And there are set dates when this gets done. Say, for example, the uh, IDSP, the Integrated Disease Surveillance Program of India, exactly goes this way. Every month it gets updated. So there is a possibility that this could be done. Now, as far as COVID was concerned, I think the testing centers were getting gradually extended. The laboratories were getting added uh, in, a, in a very, uh, say, sort of systematic manner through appropriate review by ICMR. And probably with some thought, uh, the government of India might have uh, sort of introduced this system of centralized data collection. I think I would say there are pluses and minuses advantages and disadvantages of this kind of a system. See, as all of us are aware, correct data falling into the wrong hands can be a problem. 
wrong data falling in intelligent hands again can be a problem we don't want either of these things to happen we really want to have full confidence in what that data is all about somebody has to look into the quality checks that have gone into that and the way the data has been generated and uh, the way the laboratory tests have been done whether uh, appropriate care has been taken the laboratory has been consistent in coming up with the results and so on and so forth probably that was the reason uh, why it was initially uh, thought of restricting the data to the, a centralized system where a lot of uh, quality control exercise was happening and probably once confidence started building in as far as the ability of diff, uh, conducting these particular tests in different parts of the country uh, this data started becoming available elsewhere since this pandemic started i have reviewed nearly uh, 30 35 manuscripts for uh, indian journal of medical research which were based on uh, data collected and i'm just saying that these were all based on various data collected from unreliable data sources where i myself found as a reviewer so many gaps and problems here so uh, having an authentic data source really makes uh, a lot of sense as far as i am concerned india's response to the pandemic uh, cannot be critiqued for want of uh, trying or uh, involvement of the public sector the aggressive centralization of the response may have inadvertently failed to account for the vast heterogeneity in our population as well as in local societal capacity to respond to the pandemic india lives in um, thousands of uh, villages and towns and cities that are very different from from each other the capacity of a mega city like mumbai with its many public and private hospitals and rich availability of uh, physicians and nurses is very different from many small and mid-sized towns um, across india the response to the covid pandemic in india was highly centralized uh, there is recognition of course that that a decentralized customized contextually intelligent response like you suggest would be better what prevented us from decentralizing the response on on this point of centralization and decentralization i certainly would like to say that this is a process and we have to get down to this particular process in a systematic way for example if we just take an example of uh, rntcp revised national tuberculosis control program we now have brought this particular program up to the district level you know that in india health is a state subject so in general providing health and uh, uh, promotive as well as uh, curative health is the responsibility of the states but the center takes care of the national vertical programs primarily but uh, generally this decentralization bringing it to the lowest particular level is an issue of great empowerment and capacity building at the lower tiers as well that we have to keep in mind so all these years if we have handled all of our uh, say outbreaks or epidemic uh, smaller epidemics in a very centralized kind of a manner i i certainly would also comment that doing this particular experiment during uh, the covid pandemic might not have been a very good idea but 
now what we should try and do is what we should very systematically try and build capacities to create such facilities so that this local level uh, kind of thinking critical decision making and local level responses can be made more easily and more effectively so that's what i would say it would take time but i suppose if we are committed to that it would happen you know this point you raise about unreliable data sources has, has been something that um uh, communities uh scientific communities around the world have have struggled with especially with the advent of freely available mobility data and dashboards that that you know many uh, large private technology companies uh, made available and and again sort of the lack of of that intermediary of epidemiologists that would take this mobility data and and help interpret it in the context of um uh you know epidemiological modeling because uh you know simply a, a rise in mobility or, or a fall in mobility in one district versus the other doesn't necessarily equate um you know linearly to 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 the spread of the disease and and this nuance was was hard to capture especially in the early months when you had um uh, very good scientists like you said intelligent minds but working with the wrong data uh making these projections that that you know try to influence policy um one of the challenges that that scientists have expressed about about these these early data you know as you said maharashtra was releasing data uh, so so were so were other states and and some of them were available on publicly um, observed dashboards um but but the challenge was that uh, the kind of information that was being released for example a number of tests um uh were being released without a, a denominator uh, scientists felt that it was largely because much of these data were being processed not by trained uh, scientists but by uh, consulting companies uh, that that um, uh, departments felt both at the state and central level were working with what are your thoughts on sort of how these these relationships exists uh, we have seen through public health agencies around um, around the country that consulting firms are, are playing a larger role in in implementation and it certainly provides the government um, a highly skilled uh, workforce that they are not otherwise uh, easily able to to access uh, within the the infrastructure is that the right kind of expertise are there enough epidemiologists in india to go around i think i would say no for sure i mean the answer is pretty easy and straightforward uh, one really has to figure out in the long run as to what would be the administrative unit where you would require uh, an epidemiologist here so would it be uh, the state epidemiologist is it enough to have the state epidemiologist or would you rather uh, you earlier talked about granularity so to have that kind of a granularity we will have to come down to the level of a district uh, in each state to have a district level epidemiologist uh, who is appropriately trained uh, to do this kind of a job i think the considering the population that we have and uh, the huge administrative structure that we are handling as far as a big country uh, is concerned like india is concerned we probably need a district level epidemiologist which we do not have but we isn't it is absolutely essential that we have those uh, one of the important points which uh, also is critically important is that at the level of the state 
the people who are in decision making positions the top 3 or 4 people uh, essentially have to have a very clear understanding knowledge uh, and possibly inclination towards uh, public health and epidemiology as well because uh, you know, hardcore clinicians uh, possibly uh, in absolute top level positions might not be able to understand this uh, uh, public health aspect really truly well and in that context one point which i would like to make over here which uh, is being discussed in various forums in india is the creating a separate cadre of public health in various uh, healthcare systems say as we have a director of health services we should also have a director of public health services as well in each state and uh, accordingly then we have to build up capacities right up to the ground level to implement various uh, public health programs which would then also include public health diagnosis in the long run as well and uh, would also involve activities in situations like this as far as role of consultants uh, is concerned the question that you were asked about them we know that uh, in the present circumstances uh, there are a lot of uh, such agencies that have become available which can lend uh, their services on payment uh, to various government agencies and governments are using them as well but i believe here is where uh, just getting the appropriate groundwork done or a plan prepared from a from a agency uh, is is acceptable but there should be a think tank that should be available at the level of every district at the level of every state which should look through the nuances of this kind of a plan action plan that has been developed and finally these are the people who should take the decisions which are most appropriate for their own local geographical area because they know their area best they know their people best and they know the strengths of their own programs also weaknesses of their own programs also dr mahendale you bring up important lessons local capacities after all one of the most important pillars of any disaster response contextual intelligence is important to ensure that the solution being designed is not devoid of societal realities i hope that the powers that be heed your advice that we turn to the right kind of experts and that one builds the required expertise locally especially for a country as diverse and large as india thank you for your time today thank you sachit and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you Thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at Mittal South Asia Institute.harvard.edu/india in focus podcast. Until next time.